we are going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 29. We have kind of kicked on the turbo burners here for uh, a few chapters as we move through this section that speaks against the prophecy to the nations. And uh, these sections, chapters 29 through 32, these four chapters are one effective unit. They are one unit of prophecy against uh, Egypt. And it's interesting to understand that. This is the longest section of any of Ezekiel's um, prophecies that are non-Jewish related. And it's interesting that none of it is prophetic restoration. Now, understand what that means. All of this is punitive. All of this is judgmental and judicial. However, if we go to the other major prophets, if we go to Isaiah and Jeremiah, they likewise have a judicial and punitive element, but they have an eschatological restorative component to Egypt. We can't miss that here. We don't see it in our text, but it is very, very important. Egypt is the one nation that is identified along with Israel as having a specific existence in the millennial kingdom. And I find that so unique when we think of God's judicial actions and his judgment throughout the scripture. You know, we, we, in fact, I heard one of the children in Sunday school ask it last week. Uh, I didn't hear it, but heard through the teacher. You know, the child said, well, well, wait a minute. Um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart? What, what, what was going on with that? I mean, what did Pharaoh do that God hardened his heart? Well, we understand that it was Pharaoh's culpability, Pharaoh's sin and the darkness of his heart that was a part of that. But, but recognize that even amidst four chapters of judgment, that Egypt has a very specific role as those who will exalt God and who frankly, biblically speaking, are the first nation identified that will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant or that Israel will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant through Egypt. So this is really big stuff. Um, Keep in mind that in our prophecy tonight, as with all prophecy, there is near and far prophecy. Some of this stuff is going to be happening in the next few years. All of this, as with all of Ezekiel, is chronologically dated. Some of it will be remote. Some of it will even be eschatological, although again, still punitive. The the four chapters that we're going to look at, chapter 29, is a prophecy against Pharaoh specifically and Egypt as a nation secondarily. Chapter 30 then becomes a lament. A lament, and we've seen laments in Ezekiel up to this point, they are a very specific type of literature. They're like a psalm. So they are written in a song format a hebrew song but there is a very specific meter it's actually the most specific type of literature in the hebrew text because there is this seven five rhythmic meter in the jewish text and so that's why when you see it you can tell very clearly it looks like a psalm and if you look for instance briefly at chapter 30 you see that very thing in those first verses there. Chapter, and and the, the theme of this song of mourning is actually the same theme 
as chapter 29. So it kind of, it takes the context of 29 and turns it into this lament. Chapter 31 is another prophecy against Egypt, but it really is to her allies, to those that have trusted in her. And then chapter 32 becomes a concluding synopsis of all this judgment. One thing that we need to understand as we consider this, and, and we see it in, in the first verses of, uh, of chapter 29, it says 29.1, In the tenth year, tenth month, on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. So as he prepares to prophesy against them and to bring this, this judicial action against him, there is, there is a, a nature of lament that goes on. We'll see it a bit more in chapter 30 and, and I'll accentuate it again at that point. The chronological indicators, which we've become very familiar with in Ezekiel, continue on. We are currently, with this designation in verse 1, seven months before the fall of Jerusalem. In verse 3, we see Pharaoh called a monster. That reference is a, is a reference to a crocodile. Now, a crocodile was the most familiar animal in Egypt because it was one of the most powerful. When we moved to Alabama, Karen says, I don't care where we live, I do not want any alligators or crocodiles anywhere near our house. I'm, I'm happy being anywhere you want to put us. Do not put me near the woods. Do not put me near the woods with water. So a couple houses we looked at, Tom and I had a perfect one picked out for her, and I took some pictures of the backyard, and she went, no. Um, and it was a good call. So um, anyway, the crocodile is what's being referenced here as this monster. It was one of the Egyptian gods, and one that Pharaoh Hopra, who is the Pharaoh that's being spoken of here, one that he associated himself with. He is boasting of making the Nile, um, which is the most outlandish thing he could do there in verse 3, as if he made the Nile River. Now, there was some, some backing for this because they had extensively developed the canals and the side tributaries to the Nile. Keep in mind that Egypt is nothing but a barren wasteland. It is a sand pit with the exception of the Nile River that will come in and it will flood in the spring and it brings all of these rich nutrients from the upper Egypt region, which is actually southern Egypt. The Nile flows south to north, which is rather unusual. But it brings all of these rich nutrients out of the hill country and deposits them out in the sand and to such an extent that they can grow crops basically in those top fertile layers over the sand so it's it's really somewhat of a, a horticulture a, a amazing circumstance Feinberg notes that it was the Nile that really made Pharaoh not he the Nile and the incredible pride is the evident offense that's being mentioned in verses four and five it talks about the fish there the fish were all the followers of of Hopra the followers of the monster, of the crocodile. Well, it says here that God would yank him from the throne and throw all of them, the monster and the fish, into the wilderness to rot and to be eaten by the birds. And this is a very strong statement. We see this kind of language in other places in the scripture. 
but this is particularly strong in light of the Egyptian burial rituals. Think about all that goes on, all of the mummification, all of the building of the pyramids, and all of the unique elements of the tombs and the monuments that go on for the Pharaoh. Well, he's saying, no, you're not going to have any of that. We're going to yank you out and throw you in the sand so the birds and the animals can eat you. That was a, that was a pretty disgusting and inconceivable death for a pharaoh. Egypt was also guilty of deceiving Israel in verse 6. As with all who trusted in her, as verses 6 and 7 say, the ones who trusted in her from Israel, Hezekiah trusted in Egypt to no avail. Jehoiakim trusted in Egypt and Zedekiah last of all all allied themselves with Egypt in order to try and get military help against the Assyrians with Hezekiah and then with the Babylonians with the next two with Jehoiakim and Zedekiah and in each case Pharaoh what's that you know Billy Sue got up, you know, took the money and run. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what Pharaoh did. I know. I, I've got a great career in music. It's coming. So you just be ready for it. Um, so, but Pharaoh took the money and ran. In verses 8 to 12, it addresses the coming devastation by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just the instrument of judgment on Israel. He was the instrument of judgment on on many of the regions around there. We talked about how he would go into Jordan, and he also will be the one who will destroy Egypt, and we'll see more of this as we move along. There's two towns in verse 10 that are, are shown to us, and those two towns that they re reveal are Migdol and Syene. Those are the two extreme north and south towns in Egypt. So it's showing the broad reach over which the destruction would occur. In verses 13 to 16, it confirms the continued lowly state of Egypt after her defeat. Look with me at verse 15. It will, verse 15 of chapter 29. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. And it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Always that stunning parenthesis, then they will know that I am the Lord God. But... Egypt, I mean, think of the powerhouse Egypt was. I've not been to Egypt. I'd, I'd like to go. But have we not all understood the amazement of the Egyptian dynasties and the pharaohs? When we think of the pyramids, the Giza complex, when we think of the Sphinx, have, have any of you seen the Tutankhamun thing that has traveled our country, you know, for years? Um, it's incredible. The stinking amount of gold in there is just like, whoa. This was a dynasty. This was a world power. Okay, fast forward to today. Egypt? <laughs> Not much there, right? I mean, what does the Bible say? Never again will they rule. And it's exactly what happened. Stunning to recognize this. 
the time frame changes in verse 17, and it's 16 years after Ezekiel's previous prophecy. Notice that now in the 27th year. Okay, so we've made a 16-year leap. Why? I mean, all of a sudden, this isn't chronological anymore. We jump ahead. We're going to go back in a minute. What's he doing? He is prophesying exactly when the destruction of Egypt is going to occur by Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling us exactly when that is going to happen to the month, to the day when Nebuchadnezzar will come forward. Is God specific? When he answers and when he tells us what's going to happen, you better believe it. Well, again, this shows that uh, the time of Nebuchadnezzar's victory in verse 18 confirms this historic condition where it says, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for their labor that he had performed against it. What's he saying there? Well, let's back up and consider the prophecy against Tyre. What did we know? Three different sieges of Tyre, right? It was a nation, it was a two-part city, a land part and an island part. First attack was against the towns and villages by the Assyrians. Second attack was on the coastal town of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar. What's it tell us? He didn't get anything from that. He conquered them, but what did they do? They transported all of their riches out to the island. So usually when kings go through and they conquer different cities, they take all the spoils. Well, he got nothing. But he would indeed get that and much more. And verse 21 brings the point of encouragement to Ezekiel and to Israel where it says, On that day I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel, and I will open your mouth in their midst, then they will know that I am the Lord. So he, he tells Israel, look, this is coming. Hang in there. So there's this bit of encouragement because they have all of a sudden understood that the ones that they trusted, I mean, these were their only allies. There were a few of the northern kings that had attempted to ally themselves with the Assyrians. It didn't go well for them. But the southern kingdoms, Judah, they always tried to connect with, ben, or with Egypt. Why? They're right there. They're our closest neighbors. When you come across the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, as some missiles did just a couple days ago, you are immediately in the Negev and immediately in Benjamin and Judah. So this is the region, and these are the closest neighbors and the ones they held to. So he gives them a little hope to say, Israel, hang in there. Well, chapter 30 moves us, as I mentioned, to the lament over Israel. And notice the beginning of this. Uh, we have the same time frame as the beginning of chapter 29. Chapter 30, the word of the Lord came to me, came again to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas for the day. Sometimes we can get an idea when we read the prophets and we read about the judgment that they're bringing forward, which God has pronounced and told them that they must announce to them, that they're delighting in it. Kind of like Jonah, right? Those wicked Ninevites, they're getting what they deserve. 
you know, that had a little something to it there, didn't it, with the little cast? Um, but that's not the way it was. Okay, Ezekiel is wailing in lament here. He is mourning over the destruction of human life. There, there is more to this than just, oh, this is our enemy and they're getting what they deserve because they took our money and run. Not at all. He is wailing and saying, alas for the day. The day is near. He's not rejoicing in their peril and death. The day is near, it says. Even the day of the Lord is near, verse 3. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. The day of the Lord indicates eschatological wrath. Every time you see it, and I'll tell you, it, it's not a huge study, but it is a brilliant study. There's about uh, 20 references in the scripture that have day of the Lord in exactly that terminology. Go look at it. Go read the context around it. It's stunning to recognize that it always speaks with the eschatological wrath. And it, it is not talking about, some people have argued that the day of the Lord began at the first advent of our Savior when Jesus was born. That is not it. That is when the kingdom of God was with us, but that is not the day of the Lord. This begins effectively at the rapture of the church. As we know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which also uses that phrase, there's about uh, five New Testament phrases, four or five, and about eight to ten Old Testament phrases. And it always refers to the eschatological time of the wrath of God. So, an important phrase for us. And it always not only indicates wrath, but it is immediately connected with the restoration of Israel. Every time. This puts a a death knell. That study of that phrase, the day of the Lord, puts a death knell in covenant theology and amillennialism because it speaks every case, New Testament and Old Testament, about a restoration of Israel nationalistically, which confirms all that we know about the covenants, all that we know about God's promises. Well, Egypt became the nation upon which judgment will begin here, according to Feinberg. That's another important point. Not only was judgment coming immediately for them, but now he's talking about the end times. And Feinberg is saying that when the eschatological, when the end times wrath of God comes on this planet, perhaps in our lifetimes, he believes that Egypt will be the first to receive that wrath. Isn't it interesting that in the last month, for the first time in years, the ISIS rebels in Egypt have been launching missiles into Israel? I don't know, but it is a very unique statement. I'd never heard that statement before. Uh, Feinberg is probably one of the greatest Old Testament scholars, and he has a lot of backup in addition to these texts. Verses 4 to 9 reveal that Egypt falls the lesser nations around will like, in like fashion be destroyed. As they come down, so will all that trusted in them. But they will first suffer the anguish of seeing the one in whom they trust destroyed. We see that again in verses 4 to 9, and it references all these different nations. It talks about Put and Lud, known as, and those two nations are not known today in the chart of nations, as we would call them in the Bible. They were the nations that Egypt hired as mercenaries. 
Egypt had so much money, exactly like Tyre, they didn't need their own army. They just hired mercenaries from out around. We're too busy to get our hands dirty. You know, this wasn't a mafia thing where we're right down in it and, you know, Brother Guido's out there whacking the bad guy, you know, from the, the Irish family across the street. Now, this is, they have nothing to do with it. We're just going to hire this out. We're just going to go out and we're going to buy this army and they're going to come in and they're going to do all our dirty work for us. Poot and Lude were two of those uh, mercenary groups. So also we see with the description of the peoples in the land in verse 5. Verse 6 reveals the north and south regions again, showing that, that impact, Migdol and Syene, those tame two north and south cities. And then as we move on in verses 4 to 9, we see fire becoming God's instrument of judgment. This occurs in both the near prophecy and the far prophecy. Think about Revelation. How often is fire used? How often will the stars fall to the earth and the fire will burn a third of the trees on the earth and the green vegetation? So fire is a very common form of God's prophetic judgment. Well, we would expect that because what has he said he won't do? Won't flood the land again. So fire becomes that way. And in fact, even clear to the fulfillment of the eschatological judgment upon the earth, as Peter tells us, that the earth will be burned with an intense heat. A lot of discussion, is that a recreation or is that a full destruction? I believe that that is a full destruction and that we will then see an absolute new creation of the new Jerusalem. So that this earth as we know it will be dissolved, as is the literal phrase in the Greek in Second Peter. So we're very familiar with fire that will happen. Verse 9 then is an extension of the prophecy and that coming destruction. Look at verse 9 of chapter 30. On that day messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten secure Ethiopia. And anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt, for behold, it comes. What's happening there is that as God's judgment through Nebuchadnezzar comes upon the nation, which will happen again in 12 years down the future, the 27th year as we saw back in chapter 29, that the Egyptians will flee via their ships. Remember, Israel was not a a seafaring people. There were not ports in Israel, as we've discussed, for them to be a wayfaring or a seagoing people, but not so with Egypt. Egypt was very prominent. North Africa were very prominent with deep ports, and so they were very much a seagoing people. So these would flee, and as they fleed, they would go to Ethiopia, and they would proclaim the destruction that was coming upon them to bring fear upon Ethiopia as they had trusted in them. Verses 10 to 12 confirm that although the prophecy has an eschatological aspect, it is the day of the Lord, that there is still an immediate future fulfillment, a near fulfillment that is coming forward through Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what verse 10 speaks about. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will bring this to account. And notice throughout those verses 10 to 12, who's really doing this? Thus says the Lord God, I will also make the hordes of Egypt ceased. 
down to verse 12. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry and sell the land into the hands of evil men, and I will make the land desolate, and all that is in it by the hands of strangers, I, the Lord, have spoken. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a revenge deal. This is not a power play to take the modern world. This is God moving through him to bring judgment. You know, let us be reminded when God spoke in that wonderful second visit to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he talks about how there would be 400 years. Why? Because the iniquity of the Canaanite was not yet complete. God uses different people to judge, but it is all his plan of judgment. It is never, never the hand of man moving forward. That becomes so prominent throughout the entire rest of this section. This is interesting. This is the exact same theme and message that we saw from chapter 29. Verse 13 identifies the main sin of idolatry. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols. One commentator has noted, and I I found this stunning, that Egypt has had had historically as many as 3,000 documented gods that they individually worshipped. Where were we? Um, Tony, when the China team came back and um, he gave us a little report. I'm trying to think of where that was in my senior moment here. Um, But he showed us the pictures and there was a picture of all these idols. We'll see these coming up when he does a report for us with the China team on the 19th of March. But all those idols that you saw there, Mike, you know, stuck in there. I don't, there were a lot, but I don't know that there were 3,000. Well, there were 3,000 specific idols. And not just an idol, but that idol had a whole slug of priests that went with it. We talked about Pharaoh Hophra, who worshipped the crocodile god and associated himself with that god. Another notes, another commentator notes, how one Persian king later on, after Nebuchadnezzar had come in, although there were still people and there was still somewhat of a a population in Egypt, he fought with the Egyptian cities by placing statues of cats and dogs in front of his army because the city that he was coming after worshipped cats and dogs and they would not attack the statues. So it was basically the, 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 the iron horse theory. And they came in and they conquered the city because they saw them as sacred. In verse 16, in fact, of chapter 30, it talks about a character there. It says, I will set a fire in Egypt. Sin will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached. And Memphis will have distress daily. The young men of On and Pi-Beseth. Pi-Beseth there in verse 17 was the home of the cat-headed goddess Ubastet. A cat-headed goddess. Really? I'm sorry. Not only that, history records that as many as 700,000 people would go to the celebration of the cat-headed goddess. Bill, you love cats, don't you? (laughs) We won't go there. That's Sorry about the sidetrack. But what foolishness! Is this not absurdity? 
Oh, here's what it is. It's Romans 1.25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Nothing different under the sun. Oh, we're much more sophisticated. I don't worship some stupid cat-headed goddess. I just, I just worship that car, or I just worship this house, or I just worship this job, or I just worship this checkbook, or whatever we put in that place. Well, the breadth of the cities in this section, again, shows the full extent of the country's of the country coming under destruction and as you go through verses 13 to 19 you see all of these different cities many of which whom you will have heard of either from history or even from uh from modern day references so it it is an ongoing situation that's that's happening there verse 20 advances our chronology by one month and seven days and there nebuchadnezzar's attack comes as against one with a broken arm who can't hold a sword to defend himself. So it's like, here comes the full weight and force of Nebuchadnezzar's army with chariots and horses and spears and the whole shooting match, and they're coming against a guy who's got broken arms. I could really relate to this particular passage. And couldn't even hold a spear. Couldn't hold a sword. He had no way to defend himself. Egypt had been damaged in two other battles with Nebuchadnezzar. The first one was with Judah, which we mentioned with Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar had come in as Judah had sought to ally with Egypt, and he'd done some damage. The second one is in Carchemish, which is one of the most famous Egyptian battles. And you'll find it in the Egyptian hieroglyphics as well as in the Babylonian cuneiforms and also written in the Bible in 2 Kings 24 7 both of these were crippling to egypt and then verses 24 to 26 conclude this judgment for i will strengthen the arms of the king of babylon and put my sword in his hand and i will break the arms of pharaoh so that he will groan before him with groanings of a wounded man thus i will strengthen the arms of the king of babylon but the arms of pharaoh will fall Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt, when I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. The judgment that comes forward is again clearly distinguished as coming from God. This is not Pharaoh, this is no one else, but God bringing judgment upon them. What we have to recognize with this is that God is going to exact judgment upon everyone. He will not leave any sin unpunished. He cannot and yet still be a righteous God. How much punishment deserves being laid forth and how much wrath for 54 million murdered babies. How much wrath and how much punishment for abandoning the reality of the union of one man and one woman and the destruction of the truth of the Son of God and His Word. 
for the desires of men's heart. Beloved, it's coming, and we know it's coming. And we have to be those who are proclaiming that truth. You know, it's wonderful that all these churches are running around and talking about the love of God. Rob Bell says there is no hell and there is no wrath of God. God is just love. That's not the God of the Bible. The good news of the gospel is not good news without the bad news of eternal judgment in hell. And we have to be ready to share both in right measure and in the wisdom of God, but both are vital messages for us. And this is the same message that Ezekiel was bringing to Egypt. Well, we are no way going to get through the next two chapters, so um, we'll come back and uh, do that next time. We're going to be blessed next week as uh, Tom and I will be at the Shepherds Conference. Bill Morgan is going to be leading you, and I know you're going to have a blessed time together. In two weeks, when I come back, we'll dive back in. You can be looking at chapters uh, 31 and 32. We'll conclude those at that time, and then we're going to bring it back, and we're going to slow things down as we get into chapter 33. And it's going to be, for a little while, um, up through about chapter 39, it's going to be a little bit more like almost our regular morning exposition. We'll take, a, we'll take more verses than our usual, maybe three to eight, but uh, not a lot. So we're, gonna, we're just going to slow things down and start to look at some of the amazing things that happen. And I want to encourage you to start reading ahead. Reading and rereading because the things that happen from the beginning of chapter 33 even into verse 21 of chapter 33 are really stunning. So look carefully at them, read them, dig into them, get ready. And if you've got questions... Ask those questions. I know I never stop talking. How could you ask a question? But throw a hand up. I'll see it and would love to uh, make an effort to answer it.